Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Lord, thank you now as we come and look at your word that you um, want to help us. You want to speak to us. You want to guide us. Thank you, Lord. We don't have to do life on our own, on our own wisdom, but we can come to your word and you will speak. And so we look forward to that. And I pray, Lord, that through my words and your word, the Holy Spirit would come and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So one of my dad's favorite mantras in life, the one that he often said was, don't ever talk about religion or politics, and um, which wasn't probably that good for me when uh, I ended up becoming a minister. <laughs> but uh, the reason he would say it is because people um, have such strong opinions about both, don't they? Have you ever, hands up, straw poll, if you've ever got talking about either religion or politics and it kind of got you in trouble in some way with people. Wow, that's a lot of people. Okay. Um, and if you ask how the two might relate, then it's, watch out, you know, you just let the blue touch paper. Now, it may be the after effects of the morphine that they gave me just as I was in Spain on a little break for the last few days. Because um, <laughs> uh, I had, had a gallbladder thing that just went crazy when I was in Barcelona the last couple of days. And I've only just got back from there. But as the June the 8th general election approaches, I, I'm going to attempt the unthinkable and try and talk about religion and politics, both in the same talk and the same breath. And the key passage that we're going to be looking at is in Mark chapter 12, where there's an intensely political confrontation which goes on here between Jesus and his religious opponents. Imagine a religious leader so hated by all parties in this election that they all unite against him. UKIP and Labour, SNP and Lib Dems and Conservatives all come together in one coalition with a single policy, hate Jesus. Capital punishment for one person, Jesus. That's what was going on here in Mark 12. I'll read it, verse 13. Then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is this? And whose title? They answered, the emperor's. Jesus said to them, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Um, I think somebody just came through that door, John. And I don't know if the, is the front one still open for them to be able to get in, if they need to. Um, just to go and check that it isn't somebody standing outside wanting to try to get in. This is the third confrontation that Jesus has had with these groups in and around the temple in Jerusalem and it's the second trap that they lay for him. 
If you look at the end of chapter 11 of Mark, you'll find that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they come to Jesus and they confront him and they ask him about his authority. They ask, they ask him, who gave you right? Who gave you authority to flip those tables over in the temple and drive out those people and get a whip and do all of that? And he answers their question with a question, which actually is pretty much standard form for Jesus. That's what he did a lot. So he asked them a question about the baptism of John, and then he tells them a parable where they're the obvious bad guys in it, and they hated that, and they hated him even more. Jesus, as I say, was actually a great unifier of all the parties of the day. They all hated him. He posed such a great threat to the existing power structures of the day, to the status quo, to everybody involved in leadership in Israel, that he brought together the most bitter enemies right across the board. There were leaders from the wealthy Herodians and the non-religious Sadducee elite who conspired and colluded with Rome for their own benefit and made a good living off the state so they were happy with the taxation policies of the government of the day. And they came together now with those who were often their opponents, the Pharisees and the, the scribes, strict teachers of the law who hated Israel's occupiers and saw the coin and saw Caesar's face on it and saw it as an idolatrous image so they didn't even want to touch those coins, especially because Gentiles had also touched them and that would make them feel unclean. So together, they come united as one in the Hate Jesus Coalition. They approach Jesus to trap him, it says, with another question. Teacher, we know you are a truthful man and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the word of God, the way of God, in accordance with the truth. See, they're clever. They're trying to flatter him, first of all. They know he's a man of integrity, unlike them, so they're going to use that as the trap. They want to trap him with what is not a sincere question at all. It's, it's a, it, they're out to get him. This is a classic no-win Either or. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Nail your colours to the mast, Jesus, so we can nail you to a cross. They asked, is it lawful, is it right, in other words, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, everybody hold your coin. Get that coin out and toss the coin. Shout out which yours is. I did a euro, funnily enough, and it hasn't got heads and tails on it, <laughs> interestingly enough. See, for Jesus, it's heads you lose, tails you lose. If Jesus says you must pay your yearly tax to Caesar, he would be unpopular. The people would say he kind of sold out to the man. He was in favouring the Romans, who they hated. They hated being under, under Roman occupation. 
The only reason the Pharisees haven't tried to arrest him yet is because he was popular with the crowd. And they knew there'd be an uprising. They kept saying that. If we try and arrest him, there's going to be an uprising against them. But if they can get him to say that they, that, um, he, they must pay the tax, then the people will turn against him. He won't be popular anymore. On the other side of the coin, turn the coin over to make sure you're still awake, Jesus if Jesus says, don't pay the taxes, then the Herodians, who were the other ones, would go straight to Herod, the king, the puppet king, who colluded with the Romans, who only was allowed to rule because he was their puppet. Then the Romans would arrest Jesus. How would Jesus vote? Which party will Jesus go for? The party of Taxation or no taxation? Either way you vote, you lose. This tax, just to give you some background to it, it was instituted around 6 AD and the people hated it. It was called the poll tax or the census tax. And when Jesus was ministering, it was still a recent law and there had been all kinds of riots as a result of it. There's a lot of agitation around this whole idea, all idea of having a census tax. And when it was instituted, a man called Judas of Galilee, not the Judas in the New Testament, different guy, he led a revolt against it which was quickly quashed by the Romans. The historian Josephus wrote about him. He called his fellow countrymen cowards for being willing to pay tribute to the Romans and for putting up with mortal masters in place of God. So Judas of Galilee was one of a group of people called zealots. You remember that Jesus had one called Simon who he invited in to be one of his apostles, 12 apostles. Judas of Galilee and the zealot party believed it was either or. It was either God rules or nothing. You, they, they were fundamentally opposed. So it's incompatible to, be, to have allegiance to God and allegiance to any earthly government. If you say God is your king, then you have to rise up against the earthly king. So let's be clear what was at stake. By speaking, by making a stand, Jesus of Galilee, from Galilee, was in danger of losing either his popularity or his life and there was precedent for it. These days, a lot of people would rather lose the second of those than the first. A lot of people would rather lose their life, it would appear, than their popularity. Especially if it gets them votes. The important thing is, go with the flow. Whichever the way the polls seem to be flowing. Principles are fine as long as they serve you. Say the expedient thing. To keep the polls going your way, to keep the people going your way. Afterwards, you can always say, well, of course, the world has changed now. And it's all moved on, so I can't be held to that. Has this ever happened in politics? <laughs> I think so. It didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. So, remember, it's lose your popularity or lose your life. And in the end, Jesus lost both. It happened when what he said here was twisted, was spun by those same enemies who made what he'd said into a Twitter-like little headline summary. They, they said, he opposes paying taxes to Caesar. That's the reason the Romans ended up putting him on a cross. 
It was nothing to do with the fact that he claimed to be the son of God. That was a Jewish issue. They said, we don't want anything to do with your Jewish laws. We're not interested. So then they, the, the Jewish leaders twisted it and they turned, took it to, to Pilate and they said, yes, but he opposes paying taxes to Caesar, which was a, a lie. But what he actually said went on to form the basis of Western political philosophy. If you look at the laws of our land, look at the common law, look at the way that uh, the, the roots of it, they are deeply biblical ideas and they come out of what Jesus said here about how we should relate to political questions. Because even if you say, I don't do politics, that's a political statement. Hypocrites, Jesus says. He sees their hypocrisy. Greek word to do with that is all about putting on masks. Actors in those days would put a mask on and that'd be like happy face, sad face, that's what they were doing. Say one thing, do another, switch over. Now, the denarius I just spoke about, that was the legal tender of the empire. It was the, there was a particular coin, the denarius, that you paid the poll tax with. One of these coins was a day's wage, on average, for a working man. So I've worked that out. It's about 70 pounds these days would be what one denarius was worth. We've got a picture of one. It was a silver... Roman coin engraved with a picture of Tiberius Caesar who reigned from 14 AD to 37 AD. He was the emperor of Caesar during Jesus' day. So Jesus asks, bring me one of these coins. Because he knows, despite what they say, one of them, at least, is going to have these coins. It's interesting though, isn't it, that Jesus never seems to have any money with him. Do you notice that? In the Gospels, if you look through He's always having to ask for money. But he never needed a thing. Who in England never carries money, by the way? The Queen. There's something about royalty going on here. So he asks for a coin. Whose image is on this? It's Caesar, they say. Correct. The coin had a picture of his face on one side with an abbreviated version of this slogan, Tiberius Caesar Augustus Divi Augusti Filius Augustus, which means Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. It's saying Caesar is the son of God on that side with the face. And so he flips it over. And whose inscription? He's good, isn't he, Jesus? He's <laughs> good at this. On the back is engraved Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest in Latin. Can you see why the Jews hated this tax? Can you see why they hated this coin? It's a blasphemous coin as far as they're concerned, if you're a religious Jew. So now Jesus utters one of his most famous sentences. Render, give back, render means, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That is a highly loaded sentence. In that one sentence, it doesn't give us all the details. It doesn't solve all the problems. It won't tell you how to vote. It doesn't tell you who to vote for. But it lays the foundation for a Christian approach to faith and politics. How God and government relate. We're going to look at the two sides of that too because we find out here how we should relate to politics and that should help your decision as maybe you come in this room as many other people will do from around here 
and cast their vote or wherever you do it at the general election, any election. And I believe, can I say this, and you should. And you should vote. Let's be really clear about that. You have a double responsibility here. Part one, ready for part one? Give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Why? Because Christians are called to be good citizens on earth. Be good citizens on the earth. Even if you think the government is bad. Whoever is in power at the time. Would anybody here have preferred to have been under the rule of Caesar? If you even jokingly would put your hand up and say, well, yes. It's only because you don't know anything about your history or its brutality. A few days after this confrontation, Jesus would be crucified by the Romans, but he was certainly not the only one. He's just the only one that we remember. In 70 AD, as Jesus predicted, the temple was destroyed. There was another national zealot uprising. The Romans came and they demolished the city. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, said that there was over a million Jews were killed. They crucified so many people in Jerusalem in AD 70, they ran out of wood and had to nail them to the walls. In the years following, they went on to kill all of the apostles except John, who they tortured and exiled. They killed thousands of Christians in the most awful, torturous way, Caesar after Caesar. And yes, what have the Romans ever done for us? They accomplished some great things too, like aqueducts, if you've seen that film. But Rome was not a democratic kind of voting empire. Just because they had a poll tax didn't mean there were polls. The apostle Paul was beheaded by Nero in Rome after many spells in various prisons run by Romans. But he was also proud to be a Roman citizen and said it on occasion. And he wrote this to the Romans in Romans chapter 3 verses 5 to 7. Therefore, one must be in, subject, in subjection to the government, governing authorities not only to avoid God's wrath. What's that about? It's like, if you're not, look out. God doesn't like that. But also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, or literally, you pay the tribute. For the authorities are ministers. That word ministers is literally ordained. There's not much evidence, to be honest with you, in the Bible for ordination with regard to New Testament priests, I would conjecture. But this says people in authority, politically, are ordained by God. And this is in the perfect tense, which means they were, they are, and they will continue to be. Attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honour to whom honour is owed. Which leads me to say this. Please watch what you say. And watch what you say on social media. 
The blessing of living in a constitutional monarchy and social democracy is that you do have a voice and that you do have a vote in how our country's laws are decided and how its money is spent. Be a good citizen, even if you don't agree with that policy or that tax. Even if you think the government is wrong and it would be better if somebody else were in charge or if you were in charge. I'm not so sure, to be honest. But be sure that you are ethically responsible to be a good citizen. You're not probably likely, and neither am I, to be in charge of the government in the future. I don't know, maybe somebody could go on to be Prime Minister. But you are responsible and answerable for praying for them. We're going to go on to see that. And you are responsible, you're not responsible for how the t- what they spend the taxes on, but you are responsible to pay them. Pay what you owe. Don't leave out what you owe. So Jesus' first point is very simple. Be good citizens. Caesar institutes a tax, give him his money. And even though Jesus himself later suffered the vengeance of his enemies, he actually escaped the rhetorical noose that day. But when he looked at that representation of a very imperfect, often corrupt pagan state on that coin... He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And if you've been long in these evenings since January, you know we've been talking about another another kingdom, but we've also been saying that the idea of human government is deeply biblical. And we've gone back time and time again to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 1, to verse 28. When God commanded Adam and earth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Authority by nature reflects God's authority. Look around the world and you'll see that anarchy is always worse than democracy. Government can be a gift. It provides rules and it promotes order. So what, Roman, what he's saying here in Romans 13, what Paul wrote there, echoes the same biblical theology which Jesus brought about that day. We might struggle to see authority as good at times. But that's why we should encourage and pray for good government. Because government was God's idea. The great reformer John Calvin said, there is no higher calling than civil authority. Which when I first read that, I thought, wow. You know, he was like the, all about the church, you would think. You'd expect him to say that being a pastor is the highest calling. But in the New Testament, we are told time and time again to pray for rulers. To pray for their good. Because the way the Bible sees it, their good is for our good. And we should honour them. First Timothy 2 says the same thing in different words. First of all, first of all, very, very important in other words, I urge, are we praying for this, for this election? I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all, say all even if it hurts, all who are in high, literally eminent Positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So tonight when we pray, yeah, if you've got particular views and party politics that you want, pray for that. But the Bible says pray for it all. Pray for it all. Pray that we will, the God, godly order will be maintained, that God will punish wrongdoing and uphold 
that we will uphold the laws of the Lord so that his kingdom comes. No matter how much you disagree with what a policy says or what a party is doing, Christians are called to pray and show respect to governing officials. Even if you think they're your enemies, what do we do with our enemies? And love them. There's no get out, I'm afraid. Of course we've got the right to make our opinions known, to voice our disagreement, to do it strongly at times. We must almost give, always give honour to where honour is due because government is authority that has been instituted by God. And the fact is, the truth is, no earthly party, no earthly kingdom can ever and will ever be directly identified with being God's people. Even if you start the Christian party, as some people have done, because that's still made up of humans. The Muslim idea is that Islam, the earthly kingdoms, will submit and come under, Islam will, will come under Sharia law. And they often debate how can we live in lands that are not ruled by Muslims. But Christians have always lived and been called to be exiles and strangers in any land that we go to. Because we're actually also at the same time citizens of another kingdom. Everywhere we live. And we've been seeing that in this series too, haven't we? That's why the Apostle Paul, who was crucified upside down by the Romans in the end, tells and writes to Christians, be subject for the Lord's sake to every, say every, every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme that doesn't mean worship him or to governors as sent by him by God that's what that word is relating to not sent by Caesar to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good so we should honour everyone love the brothers and sisters fear God honour the emperor please say that with me three times honour everyone love the brothers and sisters fear God honour the emperor again Honour everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honour the emperor. One more time. Honour everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honour the emperor. How hard must that have been for the people to receive that in places of persecution across the whole of the empire when Peter wrote it? It was God speaking, saying honour everyone so we can love our country without needing to be nationalistic because actually we know that we have more in common often with brothers and sisters from other nations than we do with our unbelieving countrymen. Okay, part two. What was the other side of the coin? Render to God the things that are God's. We're going to do that in a moment, but actually before we go further with it, I want us to worship again to get us ready for that because this is um, an, a, another big part of it. So Andy's just going to lead us. We're going to stand if we're able and um, we're, going to, we're going to render to God the things that are God's. And then I'll finish off. Uh, I've done, you'll be happy to know, a good three quarters of the talk, so we're just going to land it in the second bit. But I thought it was good for us to... to um, re-engage so please stand if you're able have a little stretch oh it's good isn't it good for your gallbladder apparently <laughs> I don't know if it is
Amen. Thank you, Lord. Please take a seat. Thanks, Andy. Can we thank Andy? I know some of you have been asking, like, when are we going to do the offering? Yeah, is that right? I think so. So um, what we're going to we're going to do that at the end of the talk in a minute, and um, and as as kind of a symbolic thing, I invite you if you want to during the, the worship time that comes after this to come up at some point and to put maybe that coin, whether it was your coin or the person lent it to you, in. It's sometimes easier if somebody else gives you the money for the offering, uh, for you to put it in the, in the bucket. And then if you want to as well, you could add more to it and you could put some money in other money and you could put some, um, you could put, put it in an envelope if you're a taxpayer and all of that kind of stuff to help to identify your giving. And, um, and really when you're doing that, we're not, we don't believe that Ivy just giving to Ivy, but if you can see it like that, you're actually giving through Ivy and giving it to God and giving back to God, which is the second part of what Jesus spoke about. Because at his trial, Jesus stands before Pilate, who asks if he's a king. It's in uh, John chapter 18. And Jesus says, I am a king. That is why I came, but my kingdom is not of this world. Not yet, anyway. One day, his kingdom will be of this world, because his kingship will be over all of this world. One day his reign will be fully inaugurated at the end of the age. Revelation chapter 11 tells us a day is coming soon when all of the imperfect kingdoms of this world will give way and the kingdoms will all become the kingdom of our God and Christ. Until then we live in the tension between the two. So our focus should always be let your kingdom come here on the earth as it is in heaven. And it's usually not about an either or, but it's about a tension to be held between the two. We must never forget this is a two-headed coin. Jesus commanded obedience to earthly powers unless and until they conflict with heavenly ones. Jesus called for obedience, but he, as the only son of God, would totally oppose the worship of Roman emperors, which is why so many of the early Christians ended up being killed. Authority may be bad, authority may be good, but it's never perfect. So there'll always be occasions, and maybe in our lifetime we'll come up against them, when our dual citizenship of heaven and earth will mean there's a clash of kingdoms. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18, we read about the Sanhedrin bringing Peter and John and commanding them before them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. The apostles disobeyed and then they were jailed by those same authorities. And then they brought them out and they threatened them again. And they asked, why did you ignore this order? And Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5 verse 29. See, when it does come down to that, when it's what people say or what God says, then if we're the people of God, we must obey God. When the government commands Christians to do something which God tells us not to do, we have the same choice Jesus was presented with. And you may lose your popularity. You may even lose your life. 
Because after foretelling the destruction of the temple, in Luke 21, Jesus warned, they will arrest you and persecute you. They'll hand you over to synagogues and prisons and you'll be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So, make up your minds not to prepare your defence in advance, for I will give you the words and the wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be betrayed even by parents or brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. Who's got that on the fridge on a magnet? (laughs) But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. We just sang about something a bit like that, didn't we? You may lose what you can't keep, but you'll gain what you can never lose. Every human government, every empire, every leadership is a temporary state of affairs. That's why, in a sense, we keep it in perspective. Every leader now, grasping after temporary power over a portion of this earth, will retire or die, and only a fraction will even be remembered a generation or two on. But we are inheriting an everlasting kingdom. Does that sound good? Just to me. John Wesley wrote this. I was in the robe chamber adjoining the House of Lords when the king put on his robes. His brow was much furrowed with age and quite clouded with care. Is this all the world can give even to a king? All the grandeur it can afford, a blanket of ermine round his shoulders, so heavy and cumbersome he can scarcely move under it. A few plates of gold and glittering stones upon his head. Alas, what a bauble is human greatness. And this will not endure. What is Caesar's? And what is God's? If you're able to stand, please stand to pray. And in a moment, if Andy wants to come up, you can come up to the front as part of your worship and put that coin, or some more coins, or some folding coins, <laughs> in, in here. And it's, it's just a sign to God. Put it in an envelope, like I say, with your offering, if that's what you normally do, and we'll take that at the same time. But really, this is about giving back. The word render means give back. We should return our coins to Caesar. We should give our due to those in authority. But we must reserve ourselves and give ourselves only to God. Jesus says, go ahead and pay that coin back to Caesar. But remember, he's not God. When you give to Caesar, you're not giving to God. Augustus was not divine. The government is not God, it's just run by humans. And whatever the government looks like after the election will be the same. The Greek word used for likeness is ikon. It's what we get icon from, obviously. It means image. And it's the same word used in the Greek Old Testament translation of Genesis 1.26, which says, let us make men and women in our image. So, whose image are you made in? He has written his love on every strand of your DNA. He's inscribed that on you. What are the things that belong to Caesar? Taxes, honour, respect. What belongs to God? 
Put your hand up. You do. Your life, your breath, your very self, you're made in God's image. You owe him everything, every breath, your very life. And you're like that coin. Some of us have been passed around a bit before we ended up in here. And you can end up dirty and feeling rusty. You may be tainted by sin. That might be how you see yourself. But you are so valuable to God. So precious to Jesus. Because his image, his likeness is on you. So in a moment when we come and worship, the only way that we really get to render to God, the only thing that he wants from us is us. Jesus came to collect what was due to him, which is you and me. Lord, I pray now that we won't hold anything back, but we will give ourselves fully to you now in this time of worship that we have before we leave. And Lord, as we come up and put this coin up here, it says a sign to you that we want to be those who are good citizens here on the earth and that we pay our due, whatever it is. But we put our trust in Christ. That we want to be good citizens on the earth but great citizens of heaven because everything belongs to you and everything comes from you and of your own do we give you so we give to God we reserve ourselves for you Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.